take your Bibles, if you have them, and open with me to Psalm 98. Last week, we looked at another song, Mary's song in Luke 1, uh, because when we consider Christmas and the greatest gift that ever was, the, the question is, what are we supposed to do with that? How are we supposed to respond? If God is real, and He is, and if He's done this remarkable, amazing thing in sending His Son to earth, and He has done that, then what is our response supposed to be? How do we respond to the greatest gift ever? And we might come up with a number of different things. Um, well, we sing. Well, we, we are kind, and we're patient to one another. We're generous, and we're obedient, and all of those things are true. But if we could wrap one kind of word around all of those things, it would be to worship. In response to what God has done, mankind's proper response is to worship. And when we understand what worship is, then we understand that it's not just singing. Do we sing when we worship? Absolutely. Do we worship when we sing? Absolutely. But worship isn't just defined as singing or as studying or as giving or as any one individual act. For those of us who understand who God is, for those of us that have been restored to relationship with Him through Jesus Christ, we recognize that worship is everything that we do. Worship is the heart attitude of submission to God and doing everything we do for His glory. So is it worship when we sing? It absolutely is because we sing God's praises. Is it worship when we study His Word? It absolutely is because we place ourselves under His authority and we learn about the God that we are worshiping. Is it worship when we fellowship together? And it is because as believers, we have the opportunity to build each other up, to stir each other up, to love and good deeds, to grow closer not only to God but to one another because of what He's done for us. So worship is less about a specific thing and more about the heart attitude behind everything. And this morning, uh, we're coming to Psalm 98, because we're going to start off the new year with a new song. And I'm going to read Psalm 98 to get us prepared for where we're going to go. Psalm 98, this is what the psalmist writes, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He's revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He's remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and all the peoples with equity. Let's pray. Lord, we stand uh, at the very beginning of a new year. And it's a new year that we look into with some anticipation, with a certain amount of planning. Uh, but we look into a new year that is largely unknown to us. But we know that it's not unknown to you. Uh, you're the God of all eternity. And you decreed the present and the future from long past. God, it's a power and a wisdom we can barely understand. And so as we do come into this new year, I pray that as we understand who you are more and more, that you would turn our hearts toward praise. That in the joys and the triumphs and the victories that the new year will bring, we praise you. And we remember that you're good. And in the difficulties and the struggles and the pain that this year will certainly bring as well, we remember that you're with us 
and that you are good, and that even these things are given for our good. Lord, I pray that you would help us to worship you well. We need your help to do that. So open our eyes so we can see what you have for us in your word. Uh, we're dark, we're ignorant. We don't understand these things because we're better or smarter. Lord, we only have any spiritual insight or understanding because you give them to us. So we ask that you would open our eyes and then open our mouths so that we can praise you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, everyone has different taste in music. Sometimes it's a generational gap, and I don't always understand why my kids like the music they do, but they don't always understand why I like the music I do, so that's okay. Uh, some people really like the classics. Some people, for some inexplicable reason, like jazz. And now that I've said that, I'm going to get the emails telling me that I just don't understand, and I will respond and say, you're absolutely right. I don't understand, and that's okay. Um, but I like musicals, so I'm not a guy to throw stones. Um, but the best songs, the songs with the most staying power, the songs that last and impact generations do that because uh, they have the best themes, themes that matter, themes that stick, themes that stay, themes that impact people across times and generations. And uh, God uses song. In fact, that's what the Psalms are. If you've never been through the book of Psalms, if you've never heard that, the Psalms in particular are a songbook. They're a collection of Israel's worship music. And God gave music because it's memorable, because it's beautiful, because it communicates theology and truth in a way that is deeply impacting to people. So singing matters. Our singing matters. And uh, now when we come to Psalm 98, it's talking about a new song. That's what it starts off there at the very beginning. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. And it might seem a little weird to talk about a new song when this song is likely about 3,000 years old. Um, for us, New is only within the last 10 minutes, and anything that came out last year is already an oldie. This talks about a new song, and yet it's a song with familiar themes, themes that still matter to us. And as we work through this very new old song, I hope that it reminds us about why we sing. As we stand on the edge of a new year, about why we are to continually be a people with a song in our mouth. And it's going to invite us really to consider three things to look back and to remember the works of the Lord, to rejoice now in the presence of the Lord, and then to anticipate the coming and the restoration that the Lord brings. So again, it's kind of a great look at past, present, and future. But let's open this up, and we'll start off with looking back and remembering the works of the Lord. Look at verse 1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous reasons, or for he has done marvelous things. Uh, Sometimes you need a reason to sing. Some of you are barely hanging on this morning. I know you were up late, and singing sounds difficult at best. Uh, some of you just came through a really brutal year. Some of you just came through a really long year. Some of you just came through a really great year. And some of you might be here today not knowing why you should sing at all, because singing just doesn't come naturally to you. When the psalmist here writes, and he talks about singing a new song, he gives a great reason to sing. And that is remembering that the Lord has done marvelous things. Well, things like what? He's done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He's revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. Now, a couple of important things. Um, if you don't love poetry, um, then 
Maybe Hebrew poetry is a little bit better for you. Uh, we tend to think of poetry in terms of rhyme and meter, how things sound at the end of the line and how the lines fit together with how they're structured. Hebrew poetry is based on parallelism, lines that state the same thing different ways, that show different aspects or different facets to it. And here he's talking about the Lord's salvation. The Lord has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He's revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. The idea that we have a reason to sing because God has provided salvation. Now, as the psalmist writes this, think about what Israel knew of God's salvation. They could look back on their history as a people, and it was a retelling of God's salvation in their lives. The idea of God bringing them out of Egypt, bringing them through the Red Sea, bringing them across the desert, providing food and water, providing protection from their enemies, God bringing them into the promised land, uh, God giving them kings to rule over them, God giving them prophets to speak his word, God protecting them from the nations around them, often in unthinkable, unimaginable miraculous ways. The history of Israel was this history of God's provision of salvation. And if that was reason enough for them to sing, then how much more so do you and I have a reason to sing? Because Israel saw God's physical salvation. Israel heard the promises of God's salvation through a Messiah that was going to come, but what did you and I just celebrate? We just celebrated Christmas. And the reminder that God was faithful to provide that salvation through Jesus Christ. And in case you didn't hear it over Christmas, you need to hear about the wonder of that salvation. Because that great God who made everything, including you and I, called us to be holy, to be perfect, to be like Him, but we're not. And our sin, all those things that go against God's law, everything bad that we think, that we say, that we do, that our heart intends to do, all those things that are visible and all those things that are hidden and known only to us, all those things that are against God separate us from Him. They bring separation. They bring judgment. The Bible says that the cost, the wages of sin is death. That is what sin does. It separates and it kills, but God saves. One of the characteristics of God that we most frequently see in the Bible, it's His story of salvation. Not just physically saving His people, but redeeming and saving them from their sin. And that's what Christmas was. The celebration of the fact that God sent Jesus, the Christ, to be the salvation for our sin. To live the life that we were called to live, to die the death that should have been ours, to be raised again to life and power so that you and I could have a living hope. Do you need a reason to sing on a Sunday morning when you are tired after a long New Year's Eve of celebrating uh, joyfully to the Lord, I'm sure. Do you need a reason to sing after a long year of heartache and maybe loss? Do you need a reason to sing uh, after a year that was frustrating either politically or economically or relationally? Here's a reason to sing. Because God has provided salvation to his people. Because right here at the very end of the year, we celebrate the fact that God was faithful to provide a way to deal with our sin because you and I couldn't. And not only do we remember that specific gift of salvation, but we remember God's continued faithfulness. Look at verse 3. 
He's remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Now again, if you think back on the history of Israel, it's not only a picture, a continual and constant picture of God's salvation to His people, it's also a pretty consistent and constant picture of Israel's failure, isn't it? God brings them out of slavery in Egypt in miraculous ways. And they don't make it to the Red Sea before they're complaining. And it's not very many days further before they're complaining again about food and water and wandering. And why can't we just go back to Egypt where everything was great? They were in slavery and they're wanting to go back. They come to the very border of the promised land and they say, this is too hard. The people are too big. There's too many of them. The cities are too strong. We can't do this. We should just get rid of Moses and go back. And it's this constant complaining and then God does bring them into the land and over and over what do you see they reject God and his law and they pursue the idols of all the nations around them and they're greedy and they're corrupt and they're proud and they're arrogant and they're rebellious and as often as God has displayed and provided his salvation Israel seems too stubborn to receive it and what does God do well God is just and God deals with sin. We know that he even removes them from the land itself and kicks them out and exiles them. But what is his consistent promise? If you turn, I'm there. Repent, return, and come back. That salvation that God promised isn't contingent, isn't based, isn't hinged on human goodness or faithfulness. It's hinged on His faithfulness. See, the story of Israel's history is about their failure, but it's also a picture of God's constant faithfulness to a faithless people. And again, let's look back at our lives. Maybe we don't need to go that far. Maybe we just look back to this week. And if we're honest, we see failure. Some of us, even with the best of intentions, manage to not do things the way we know that we should. And yet he's revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations, and he remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness. Or to put it the way that John does in 1 John, as often as we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you need a reason to sing this morning? That God that provided your salvation in the first place is faithful to keep it. That God that covered and cleansed your sin is faithful to continue in his forgiveness and his steadfast love. That idea of steadfast, constant, covenant-keeping love. Love is a reason to sing, isn't it? I mean, how many songs are about love? All of them. Well, a lot of them. This is the kind of love you write songs about. Love that is constant and steady and faithful and steadfast, even when you and I aren't. There's so much rejoicing and joy in that. There's reason in that for us not only to sing, there's reason for us then to be merciful, to be kind to be patient, to be forgiving of others even when they fail us. Uh, there's reason for hope in that. 
Maybe you look back at this last year and all you see in your mind is the track record of your own failure. Maybe as you take stock of this last year, it brings you to the edge of despair because of your own shortcomings. And it's hard. If, if I look at my failures as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, over time those things build up and they weigh on you. Now you and I can be sorrowful over our sin because that brings us to repentance, to recognizing that we fail and to asking for forgiveness. But for those of us who understand God's salvation, like the psalmist writes about, for those of us who understand the promise of Christmas and the Christ who came to deal with our sins, there's no room for despair, not lasting despair, because God's steadfast love is greater than our sin. We sing a song every now and then, His mercy is more. Our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. There's reason to sing in the steadfast love and faithfulness of God. The idea that all the earth has seen the salvation of God. Israel was a picture, a time, and a place. And yet all the nations were able to see this tiny nation defended and kept by a power that was obviously infinitely greater than they were. And now through Christ, all the ends of the earth know the salvation of God, the one through Abraham's seed, through whom all the earth would be blessed. He's come to make his salvation known. So what do we sing our new song about that's really an old song, but it expresses itself in a thousand new ways? Well, that song looks back and it remembers what the Lord has done. So this year... As you stand on the edge of the new year, I'd invite you to look back and remember God's faithfulness. But that's not all. Because the psalmist invites us to sing a new song, not only in remembering, but in rejoicing in his presence. There's the idea of this continual rejoicing. And that starts in verse 4. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the king the Lord. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Break forth into joyous song. And some of you say that's exactly what it's like when I sing. It's a joyful noise. Uh, emphasis on the noise. <laughs> but in light of who God is and what he's done, uh, what the psalmist says is when you look at these things and when you know who God is and when you can call yourself one of God's people, because that's exactly what Israel was. They were God's people. Imperfect, fallen, failed, but they were God's people. They were invited to come into his presence, to worship him in the temple, to approach him with the sacrifices that they were given. And now you and I are called God's people. Fallen, failed, but forgiven. Called to worship. God's spirit placed in us. We're called to this like continuing response of praise. In fact, it's the only thing that makes sense. When you understand that this is true, the faithfulness, the steadfastness, the mercy, the salvation of God, this is the only right and reasonable response. And I love the scope that he says, that let all the earth break forth into joyous song. And in one sense, if you think about it, the earth itself does respond to God. In fact, he's going to say that in a little bit in verse 7. The sea roars and the rivers clapping their hands. It's the picture of kind of creation itself praising God. This isn't the only place we see that. Um, Psalm 19, 
When David writes Psalm 19, he talks about how the sun goes from one end of the sky to the other, and he gives a couple of pictures. He says, when the sun does that, when the sun does what the sun does, because God designed it to do that, it's like a bridegroom going out to meet his bride. It's like when a strong man is rejoicing to run his race course. Now, I don't know if you've ever experienced those two things, but a young man about to get married is pretty typically excited to do what he's about to do, to go and meet his wife. An athlete who is prepared and tuned to run his race is usually pretty excited to get to the starting line to prove that his preparation is going to pay off. And David says that's exactly what the sun is like. And we know the sun doesn't have feelings, but when creation does exactly what God designed it to do, it cries out about the power and the glory and the majesty of the one who made it do that. So when he says, let all the earth praise, as you look at the world around you and it functions in a way that is orderly and that makes sense, and that is functional, and that is so intricate and designed, all of that actually brings us back to praise to God. But it's also a reminder that all of the earth can break forth into joyful songs and praises because God has provided salvation for the whole earth. That Jesus Christ is not a regional, local Savior, but that He is the Christ, the Savior, the Messiah for all men and women that you and I sit here separated by time and by thousands of miles from these people, and yet we rejoice and we sing in the salvation of that same God. And that today, varied across different time zones and different languages, we sit in churches all over the world and we rejoice in that same salvation. We forget that sometimes because our lives are small. Our perspective is small. It's limited. This God that we worship is worshipped by people everywhere on the earth, and that looks forward to something that we'll get to in a minute, I know, but hang on. But when we understand a God like that, if we really understand a God like that, how could we help but praise? How could we help but sing? Kids that are out there that are falling asleep because you were up till... New Year's or East Coast New Year's or whatever your parents allowed you to do. When you go to a sporting event, when you go to the Dodger game and the Dodgers score a run, what happens? What happens? You can talk in church. It's okay. You stand up. You cheer. You high-five total strangers, right? You spill stuff because you forgot you were holding it. When something good happens, there's a measurable response, and it's natural, and it makes sense in that context. You and I come together every week, and we sit in this same place. Some of you sit in the same place every week, and if anybody else sat there, we'd have some counseling to do. <laughs> but you and I come here and we sit and we sing songs that talk about a God who made everything, who loved you enough to send the Son to die for you. We sing about a God who made everything work together for your good and my good, whether that's heartbreaking or whether that's joyful circumstances. We sing about a God who is preparing a heavenly home for us to live with Him forever, and we can barely manage to keep our eyes open and our mouths moving to the song. And sometimes I know that's because of the preacher, and you're forgiven for those ones. But does singing and talking and contemplating and responding to that God really get old to us? The Dodgers won a bunch of games last year. But you know what I never saw at the end when they hit a home run, the crowd going, nah, we've seen it before. 
And yet sometimes if we're honest, we come to all of this, all of this, and we say that it's true, but somehow it's like we've seen it all before. You and I come into the very presence of God. We pray and we speak directly to the God who made the stars. You and I come together with people who really we have no business having anything in common, some of us. And yet there's a bond and a unity that is only because of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done. And we're bored of that? No, that, that, that demands, that only makes sense to have a response. And what does that response look like? Well, it's loud. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Break forth into joyous songs. It's musical. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. I love music. I love hearing people that are gifted. Uh, God has given us a gift of creativity because he is creative. And you hear people use their gifts to praise God, and it's just a beautiful thing. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the king, the Lord. And I love that because when you're in the presence of a king, you respond to him the way that he deserves. When you recognize who it is we're talking about, this makes so much more sense. When I was at the Air Force Academy, quite often we would get guest speakers that came in. Um, and even if you missed the name and the title on the brochure for when you were going into the hall to be addressed by whoever you were going to be addressed, you could tell how important the person was by their intro music. And yes, in the military, everybody has intro music. And when the general or admiral or vice president or whoever it might be would come in, then the band plays what's called Ruffles and Flourishes, because why not? It's manly and military. And I would sing for you, but it's however many ruffles and flourishes you got told you how important you were. It's the bump a bump a bum bump a bump a bum See, I did it. Sorry. <laughs> two of those, two-star general. Three of them, three-star general. You see how this is going? Your walk-up music showed how important you were. Here we are, and the psalmist is talking about the King and the Lord, the Creator of the world and the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the absolute authority over everything that he's made, and he's saying this makes sense. All the musical response that we can give, all the beauty of creativity that we can pour into it, he deserves all of that. So when you come... And you sit, and your singing is reserved. Can I ask you why? Well, if you heard my voice, you would understand. He's the one that made your voice. And he only gave it to you so that you could respond to him. Well, you don't know the circumstances that I've been through in my week. You're absolutely right, I don't. But the great King and the Lord of Lords does. And he is not absent over any of them. He is sovereign over all of them. See, sometimes, and again, we, we don't say it out loud because it sounds terrible. But sometimes we act like our worship is for us. 
We go to a church. Why? Well, because the worship is this way. And when we say that, we mean the music is this way. It makes me feel a certain way. It's put together a certain way. And music does impact the emotions. Music does, good music does, train our thinking. But our worship isn't first and foremost for us. It's for Him. You need a reason to sing today. How about this? (laughs) The Lord, the God of all eternity, is here. And not just here in the general sense where God is everywhere. That is absolutely true. There's not a place or a part of his creation where he is absent, but he has sent his Holy Spirit to dwell within us. And you and I sing in the very presence of God because he's enabled us to respond to him rightly. That same God that invites you to sing gave you the voice to do it. For all its beauty or for all its joyful noisiness, He gave you the ability to do something that pleases Him in our own finite and imperfect way. So we're called to respond to the Lord in worship. And we worship Him because of what He's done. We worship Him because of who He is now. Not only does this psalm call us to look back and to respond now, it calls us to look forward. Because this psalm anticipates a coming restoration. Look at verse 7. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Again, that, the idea of the seas and the rivers and the world itself pictured as responding in worship. But look at the context of their responding in worship. It's before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth. One day creation is going to respond to the coming king. This isn't the only place that says that. If you were to go to Romans 8, Paul actually says something very similar. He says creation itself eagerly anticipates this coming of the Lord. Because right now creation itself is subject to the bondage and the slavery and the stain of sin. This earth, as beautiful as it is, and it is beautiful, shows what sin has done. And creation itself anticipates the release and the restoration that's coming. And it's coming with the righteous judge. The Lord comes to judge the earth. And He's going to judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. You need a reason to sing. A king is coming who is unlike any earthly ruler. We are so fixated and often so frustrated on the political situation in our country or in other countries because people are bad. (laughs) And the best hopes that we have for whoever our guy is always end up falling short, don't they? Because the best politician, the best king, the best ruler, the best human authority is at best human. And that can trickle down to whatever level we want to think through it. The best boss, the best pastor, the best spouse, the best friend, still fallen, still human, still the constant reminder that we live as sinful people with other sinful people, but there is one coming who is not like us. 
There is a king and a ruler coming who is unlike any other. When Jesus returns, we just celebrated how he came in humility. We just celebrated how he came and was laid in a manger. We just celebrated the fact that not only did that baby come, but that he lived and that he died. That Jesus allowed himself to be subjected to the cruelty of the cross, to the injustice of that, so that God could redeem his people. When he comes again, he is going to dispense perfect justice. And depending on how you are related to Christ, that is either a wonderful promise or a terrifying reality. Because here's the thing. When Jesus comes again, He judges perfectly and rightly. And for right now, you and I might get away with any number of things. We might be able to hide our failures or our sins. We might be able to talk our way out of them, lie our way out of them, buy our way out of them. They might be able to be hidden. And maybe we think as we move into a new year, well, we actually got through that without anybody figuring out what we had really done. We need that uncomfortable reminder sometimes that there is a judge who is coming that has not missed anything. That the eyes of the Lord are in every place. That he keeps watch over the good and the evil. That God doesn't miss a thing. And so I would urge you, on the threshold of this new year, to look forward to the fact that God will deal with sin. That God will reconcile or bring all accounts to balance. And either you will bear the penalty for your sins, or they'll be placed on Christ. And for those of us who know Christ, what a beautiful reminder that of one who is coming to rule in righteousness and equity is the promise. Because how often do we say that's just not fair? That situation is not right. And the world around us says you have to get your own justice. There are 10,000 lawyers who make their living off of that that you deserve what you are owed. There's a better promise. That there's a perfect judge coming who will execute justice across the whole earth. And so you and I can leave vengeance and justice to him, knowing that he doesn't miss anything. That one day you and I will sit under the rule of an authority of the perfect king. The one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Heaven, earth, under the earth, no one escapes this universal rule and reign. That's a reason to sing. Because we stand here and we don't know what our leaders will do in the coming year. We don't know whether they'll make our day-to-day life easier or more difficult, or both probably given any specific number of circumstances. But we look forward and we know the one who is coming. And as we look to the new year, it's a question mark for us. 
We might know certain things. You might have specific dates on the calendar. You might have the anniversary planned. You might have the trip planned. You might have a wedding planned. You might have the graduation planned. We know bits and pieces. We plan bits and pieces. But if we're honest, it's pretty shadows. Here's a great reason to worship. The Lord sees it all with perfect clarity. It, you can entrust the great unknown to him because it's not unknown to him. And I don't know whether the Lord is going to come back in this year or in five years or ten years or whether he'll tarry a lot longer than that. But as we stand on the beginning of a new year, we're a year closer. And should we come to the end of next year, we'll be able to say the same thing. We're one year closer. One year closer to being with the one who saved us. There's a right response to all of that. There's a right response to who God has been in the past. There's a right response to who God is with us now. There's a right response to the fact that he is coming again. And it is joyful worship and praise. And if right now you're thinking, well, maybe I missed a little bit on those first few songs. Great news for you. You'll have the opportunity to do that again. We will sing together again. But before we do that, today, again, a little bit different than our normal Sunday format, but providentially, uh, we're on the first Sunday of a month. And so we get to celebrate communion together. But we get to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, which calls us to look back, to look inward, and then to look forward. That's what communion does. So the ushers are going to come. They will pass out the communion elements. If you don't have them, just raise your hand slightly. But given all that has happened over the last couple of weeks with Christmas and Christmas Eve and New Year's celebrations and work parties and Christmas parties and finals, uh, some of you are likely more than a little bit worn out. The late night from last night that I know you just spent prayerfully anticipating the new year, maybe it's catching up with you. And before we take communion together, I want to give you a couple of minutes just to pause and to reflect. And I want you to do just that, to look back and to remember God's faithfulness. That is what we celebrate in communion, that God sent the Son to die for us, that His body and His blood were broken and shed so that we could know forgiveness. I would invite you to look in right now to continue to think through whether there are things that you need to confess, whether there's sin that you need to confess and enjoy the restoration that repentance brings. Maybe there's a relationship that you need to seek restoration in. Someone that you need to ask forgiveness from. And I would invite you to look forward, to be reminded that we're not looking forward to a new year where everything will finally be better. We're not looking forward to turning the calendar page to wash 2022 out of our hair. We're looking forward to the coming of the righteous King who will judge all people perfectly. And because our judgment has fallen on Christ, we're looking forward to the coming of the one who calls us into his presence as sons and daughters. Now, if you don't know what in the world is going on, if you don't know what communion is or why we take it, if you don't know who this Jesus is, if you don't see uh, him as your hope, your salvation, I would encourage you to just let this pass. There's nothing mystical, magical, saving in taking a cracker and juice. For those of us who understand what it is, there is a powerful reminder there. But there's nothing in doing this that will save you. 
I'd love to answer the questions. I'd love to bring you to the place where you do understand those things. But I would encourage you that if you are not a Christian, don't, don't feel like you need to participate in this. In fact, don't participate in this. It, it would only confuse the issue. But I want to give you a moment now, in the quietness of your hearts, in the quietness of this, the day around us, to prepare our hearts for communion, and then I'll come back in just a moment, and we'll take the bread together. So if it takes you a moment or two with those tabs, I'd encourage you to get ready with those. And as Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he says, For I received from the Lord that what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. And let's pray. Lord, we just moved through the Christmas season, and what a beautiful reminder that the God of all eternity took on human flesh and became like us, humble, lowly, laid in a manger, that Jesus Christ would know what it was to be frail, to be tired, to feel pain. It's a humility that we can only see in you. And so, Lord, we praise you because in your mercy, you became like us. Truly man, only without sin. What a wonderful Savior. Amen. about that that blood saves us
prepare those cups. And Paul goes on to write, in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Let's pray. Lord, we rejoice in your steadfast love, a love that covered over our sins, not just with bulls and goats who could cover it for a time and the sacrifices under the law, but Lord, you sent the perfect one to die for us. And it seems almost unthinkable that death would save, or that death would bring life, but that's exactly what the death of Jesus Christ does. His death covered over our sins and cleansed them. And his resurrection, his life, promises us eternal life. And so, Lord, we look forward. Uh, We do this until you come. We celebrate the fact that you are the king who was, the king who is, and the king who is coming again. 
So Lord, I pray that you would help us to live lives of anticipation, not of better circumstances, not of a better year than last year, but lives that live in anticipation of the coming of the King, and the time when we'll be with you forever. So we pray, Lord, come quickly, because we do long to be with you. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So now, as I said earlier, you're going to get the chance to respond to these things. Um, the ushers are going to come, and they're going to grab those mics. And I would encourage you to think through maybe even one of those three things. What is something that God has done this year that has reminded you of his faithfulness that you'd like to share? What is something about God that now brings you to praise? Something about who he is, uh, an attribute of his, a characteristic of his that is worthy of praise that brings you joy? Or maybe even what's something you're looking forward to about being with him? Uh, what makes you long for heaven and for eternity? And again, these don't have to be polished. They don't have to be perfect. They don't have to be theological textbooks. I just want to hear God's people talk about the God that they love. And so we'll do this for a couple of minutes, and I hope it's encouraging. But uh, when you're ready, just raise your hand, and the ushers will bring you a mic. This year has been full of milestones for our family, and those have been natural opportunities for us to look back and see God's faithfulness and provision and kindness, and it has made it easier um, when we look back at all he's done to look toward the future with hopeful anticipation of the goodness that he'll continue to provide. sharing this more from Esther because I happened to write this this morning before I heard your sermon <laughs> and I think you'll understand. To be honest, 2022 was a hard year for us. Yes, God faithfully worked throughout the year. He worked for th through changes in circumstances and in relationships and in people we love. He worked through loss and in grief. He worked through our questions and in waiting for answers yet to come. And to be honest, because a New Year's Eve does not transform one's life on New Year's Day, we can expect more of the same in 2023. And really isn't this true of every year. So we wait and pray and trust and sing our way into this new year because truly God is working and great is his faithfulness. Thanks, Lord. Anyone else? As uh, Matt spoke earlier in his short sermon um, about uh, failure and that cycle of failure for the Israelites and um, and God's faithfulness, uh, it been something that God has been working through in my life, um, particularly in how failure relates to fear and anxiety. And um, this is something I actually shared with the elders earlier this year, and I thank Matt for not actually staring directly at me during that part of the sermon. But, uh, <laughs> but um, the, and this this was written with a 
with a note of the, or a tone of dubiousness, I guess, um, or, or questioning. So, but uh, it's it's about failure and how how past failure can steal a, our our future hope. How powerful is failure? How significant a thing? That poison of tomorrow's hope. What paralyzing sting? How faithful, faithlessly I shudder. What excuses I now say, because my failure shadow fell on plans of yesterday. Ambition's fires sputter, my future rent apart, because today did not bear out desires of my heart. How spinelessly I bow to such a tyrant king that has no real authority over future things. So I was thinking about, I have a choice. I have a choice that God has put before me throughout this year and continues to put before me to either put myself on the throne and rely on my success, my ability to bring out success, my ability to, to be obedient on my own, my ability to um, create blessing in my life. Or, and I can let that, that fear of failing in that be the lens through which I look at my future, be the lens at which I look at trial in my life, or I can let him be on his throne. And I'm reminded of Isaiah 41.10 that says, So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So I can rejoice in trial when God is on his throne because he will be faithful to bring about in my life the change that he has promised. He will be faithful to make me more like his son, and he will be faithful through the hard things, through the trial, to draw me closer to him. Our van got towed, and ever since then, God has been sending people to help us get where we need and to help us get food and water and showers so that we can live a nice life. Thanks, Aloysius. The second half of this year has been a real difficult one for me. I had health problems. Many of you know I had a stroke that could have easily killed me in August. And through quick intervention by a Christian doctor, I was completely healed of that. And then I've had other problems since. But through this all, God has been faithful to keep me going, and he's a God of healing. I'm just looking forward with excitement uh, to God's grace in the new year. Anyone else? Psalms 145 says, the Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and great in mercy. Um, I just thank God for his graciousness. It's always available, and I will continue to fall short. But in him, and in this year, and in every day, I can become more like him. 
because of that graciousness. So I thank him for that. Any others? Thank you for sharing those things. And I would encourage you, did I miss somebody? Okay. I would encourage you to take every opportunity to continue to share those in private conversations. We need to be a people that are continually uh, stirring one another up to love and good deeds. And that doesn't mean just that we poke each other to serve at Boo Fest and those other things in BBS. Although Tracy needs your help, serve at those things. Those are good things to do. But stirring one another up to love means calling each other to remind ourselves of the God that we love and who loves us. Good deeds involve praise and worship, and we can stir one another up to those things all the time. So I'm going to call the worship team back up, and we'll close our time in song together. And I would remind you, this is the song where joyful noise, this is a good time to do that. So. <laughs>